just briefly about Mark's Gospel, because we'll be in it for a bit. Uh, a bit of a background. Uh, it's probably the earliest gospel that was written, probably the 50s or 60s, AD 50, AD 60, probably more like the late 50s. Um, as far as who, which Mark, because Mark was a very common name in this time, it's kind of like a John-ish today. Uh, we can't really exactly be sure which Mark. Some people think it was a guy who translated all Peter's works and was with Peter a lot and got all, a lot of his information from Peter. Um, some people think it was John Mark that's mentioned in Acts and some of the epistles. Now, the thing that gets a bit confusing is that same <coughs> translator for Peter could also be that same John Mark in the, in the Acts and the epistles. We're not really sure. Um, most people think it's probably John Mark that's written about in Acts. Uh, so there's a bit of a question as far as which kind of Mark is the Mark, but we have an idea of a few guys who that might be. Uh, this gospel was most likely written in Rome, which is not a Jewish kind of area, and mostly written to people who were not Jewish, Christians. So Gentile Christians is kind of the audience. Um, and it's also worth reminding that uh, the, Mark's audience was... Uh, the way that they would have heard this gospel would be more like an audiobook today. The more of they, very few people would have been able to read for themselves. It would have been very strange to read silently to yourself. That was more like a post-medieval kind of thing that happened. Um, so the way you would hear the gospel is kind of like what we're doing today. It, it would be just people reading it out loud, and that's how people would learn. So if you listen to audiobooks, you're so technologically advanced and also so not. Um, and Mark really is kind of set up for this kind of storytelling. Even in the brief verses that Claire read, there's 20 verses there. So many things happen. Like John goes in prison, Jesus is baptized, the first followers, like all this stuff happens. And it's like immediately. And right after that, this happened. Then after that, this happened. And it's kind of like a, um, like a quick storyteller kind of thing. Like, and then he says, and then Jesus does this. And then after that, Jesus says this. So it's actually, it's a bit kind of exciting, very quick kind of gospel to read. After chapter 8, the reason why we're, started, we're doing 1 through 8 is because after chapter 8 starts the passion narrative, the narrative of Jesus' um, crucifixion and his uh, resurrection. And uh, it's an extended part in Mark, so much where some people are basically define Mark as a passion narrative with a long introduction. And these first eight chapters are like the non-Christ-death aspect of it. So hopefully we're going to pick up next autumn, we hope to pick up the last part of Mark. Um, but we'll see what happens when we come to that. Now, the reason this it will be our first series as a church, uh, the reason why I thought this was important for us is, well, one, I think it's important for the church to know the life of Jesus. If we're going to follow this guy, we should know what this guy is about. Um, and he's the one who's leading Redeemer. Uh, and what better place to start than how he lived on earth? And this gospel in particular brings up what discipleship looks like, especially the hard parts of discipleship. It's... Um, <coughs> Mostly what we're going to find out is most people don't get Jesus. Most people are afraid of Jesus or fearful of him or don't really understand exactly what he's saying all the time. And I think that's a good analogy for us. We think we know what Jesus is about, but he's going to surprise us, I think, in some ways. And also majors a lot on Jesus being the king. Um, you could almost subtitle Mark uh, how Jesus becomes king. It's like the process of how God becomes a king here. And I hope that as we learn more about Christ, our King, we will surrender ourselves all the more to Jesus, the King. So if we take a moment, though, and think of our current situation in this world, it's not hard uh, to see the brokenness, the lack of perfectness that our world has. Our world is incomplete. Our world is crying out for wholeness and sometimes doesn't even know that it's crying out for wholeness, but it is. There are people who are living with addictions, 
There are people who are living in broken families, people living um, who have been hurt by those who are supposed to care for them, people whose dreams have been dashed, relationships that are broken. This is all very normal experiences that we all have. But the Christian hope is in a rightful reordering of this world where every broken way is being put back together. Every crooked way is being made straight under King Jesus. So where those have addictions, they find support and freedom. Where families can grow in love, where people can find healing, where we take our disappointment and discover that wholeness, what it means in all parts of our life. Now this is a tall order and not something that we can do ourselves. Like we are literally not equipped to be able to do this by ourselves. We need Jesus to come, and, and Mark is the story of the king who's coming. So for this sermon, we're going to just look at three main things, and I think you have them on your uh, little handout if you want to use that. First, we're going to look at us. We're going to see how we are broken, us and our world. And the second thing, we're going to look at Jesus, how he is the surprising king, which is king and Messiah. That's basically the same word. We'll see how he's the surprising king. And then together, us and Jesus, we're going to see what that looks like and how Jesus asks us to follow him. So we're broken. Jesus is a surprising king and Jesus asks us to follow him. Uh, let's start first on the we are broken bit. Two things about the brokenness that we are. One, um, we're going to look at how this world needs to be set right. And the second one is how we also need to be set right. Uh, let's look briefly at how the world needs to be set right in verses 2 and 3. This is John the Baptist, um, or uh, before John the Baptist comes on the scene. This is uh, Mark talking about Jesus through Isaiah the prophet. And he says, uh, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. <laughs> And this is all about uh, John the Baptist's ministry at this point. So this isn't Jesus. This isn't the guy. This is the guy who's preparing the way for the guy. Isaiah uh, prophesied hundreds of years earlier before this uh, about the king who's coming. And this messenger, John the Baptist, is like a royal hel- a herald. He's, go- he's going to prepare the way for the king. He's like the guy at, um, in a Jane Austen movie when there's a big party or a big dance and the important people come in and someone says, Lord so-and-so, or whatever the thing might be. I found out that Fitzwilliam Darcy doesn't actually have a title, so I couldn't say Lord Darcy because that would be wrong, and I wouldn't hear about it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so it, it's kind of like that's John the Baptist kind of role, basically preparing, like get, getting the attention of people to be able to see who this person is. In order for the king to come, the paths had to be made straight. So that's where the uh, so if there are hills. It takes a much longer time to go up and down hills than just to go down a straight road. If there are curves in a road, it takes a much longer time to go through curves and to, than if it was just a straight kind of shot. And so this is what John the Baptist is doing. All the curves, all the hills, he's trying to make it as straight as possible, preparing the way for Jesus to come. The fact that someone had to do this first, so someone had to prepare the way, shows that the world in itself wasn't ready for Jesus to come because the world was not prepared. It was ill-prepared for the king. Paths are crooked. There are valleys. There are hills. And at this time, the, the world isn't yet ready for this kind of king. It needs to be prepared. And all of the broken parts of this world need to be in a state of ready for this king who will put everything right. So Mark is the story of this world being made ready for the king. This world needs to be set right. That's not an, a hard thing to grasp. I think we all get, yeah, the world's not perfect. The... um. Thing that's a little bit harder, though, is when we degeneralize the statement and make it very specific. Of not only is the world broken, but I am broken. 
I, Greg Wilson, am broken. Like, I, Mike Lehan, am broken. I, Christina Wilson, am broken. Like, that's much harder to say because that rests on us. We don't want to be seen that way. We want to be seen perfect. I, I don't need to be fixed. Does that thing switch off? Someone uh, <laughs> turn the power off on it. Thanks. Okay, turn the power off. Off on the, the uh, wall. Yeah, thanks. I can't compete with it. Um, <laughs> it'll slow down. Um, so uh, in, in that kind of more personalized brokenness, let's look at verses uh, 4 and 5. So uh, John the Baptist is there preparing the way, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. He's not saying uh, a baptism of like changing the social structure. He's not saying uh, a renewal of the church. He's not saying um, we need a new kind of government. He's saying something very specific, personal repentance. So the world needs to be set right, and we also need to be set right. John starts with our hearts, and that's where we're going to find Jesus doing most of the work. It's kind of like you don't just have raw, plain ingredients and all of a sudden a beautiful, delicious burrito. You need to take those ingredients. You're going to get very hungry in a moment. Um, and you need to prepare them. They need to be prepared. They need to be cooked. They need to be chopped up. Things need to be fried or whatever the amazing things you're going to do to make that wonderful, delicious burrito. Um, preparation for us is this thing called repentance. That's how we prepare ourselves. That's how we can truly see who the king is. Saying sorry for what we've done, kind of what we did this, uh, this morning, this afternoon already, through confession. Um, it's important to do that together, and that's why we build that into Redeemer every Sunday, to confess where we've gone wrong. Well, and so what do we get in return for this? Well, a baptism of repentance, and the end of verse 4 says, for the forgiveness of sins. So we say we're sorry we've been facing the wrong way. We direct ourselves in the right direction, ask God to forgive us, and the crazy thing is that he does. And we must do this continually because we're continually messing up. Remember, I, Greg Wilson, am broken. You, insert your name here, blank, are broken. Now, if we aren't breathing out our confession and breathing in forgiveness, it all kind of builds up. And we all kind of have that kind of swirl that might be going on in the back of our heads. For various reasons, we aren't honest about God with where we are, uh, about how broken we are. Maybe we're pretending as if he doesn't even know, but of course he knows. And we get clogged up, but it comes out in different ways. It's always going to come out in one way or another, um, either through intense sadness or just kind of generally feeling low, trying to do lots of good things to compensate for the areas where you don't do good things. Mostly shame. Shame is just this, the reality of you are not enough. Maybe you guys have felt that. But isn't that also the very thing we recognize when we confess? We recognize we are not enough. And it's not like we're trying to hide from that. We're presenting that to God. And we're saying, no, that's true. We aren't enough. But that doesn't mean we have to be shamed about it. So God, I'm not perfect. If I was a better person, I would have not have done that. But before our king, we bring our shame. He frees us. And that's what forgiveness is, being freed from our wrongs. Because otherwise, our wrongs are going to hold us back if we're not in that process of forgiving, of being forgiven. But we can't be freed if we don't come to him. The way is being prepared and our hearts really, really need it. Even though it's an individual thing, we aren't made to do this process by ourselves. We need others involved in this with us. We need other people who are calling us to confess, other people who are encouraging us to repent and to live out of the freedom that forgiveness gives us. Because I know as much as I know my own 
sin, my own wrongs. I need my wife and lots of other people to say, well, that was actually not very good. Like, oh, yeah, it wasn't very good. How many times? I mean, we need that all the time. But it's also the thing that we don't like because we also want to be seen as perfect. We kind of want to keep a hands-off approach. But it's much better for us to live in this way. And what this looks like is it looks like inviting others into our lives. And that can be scary, but even more scary is not inviting others into our lives. Living alone in our shame. So it's not easier to live this way with repentance and forgiveness, but it's a much better way to live. So because it is better, let's prepare the way for the king in our lives. So let's... um. Now that we dealt with kind of where the brokenness is in the world out there and also in inside of our hearts in here, let's talk about that first verse here, uh, specifically how John begins. John doesn't like kind of mince words at all. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, we talked about how the world and ourselves are broken. Now we're going to look at um, about Jesus, how he's the king, how he's the surprising king, a.k.a. the Messiah. This is one of Mark's big points with his gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, which is another way of saying Jesus is the king. It's the same word. Um, in the Greek, it's this word called Christos, which is where we get Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's his title. It's not on his birth certificate. Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, so the word Messiah is the same word for Christ. So basically, some of the translations might say the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. Uh Christos, that Greek word that means Christ or Messiah, means anointed one. Uh, the reason why this word means king is because the way Old Testament kings would become kings is they would be anointed, like oil would be poured over their head and it would kind of drip over through their beard. Same thing with priests as well. Um, the ritual act of enthroning a king for Israel in the Old Testament was to do that. It's basically, if you didn't do that, then you're not really king. But once that anointing happens, well, then like you're a legitimate king. And that means that uh, you are God's choice of being the leader, you're God's choice, or you're, you have God's approval, you have God's blessing, and an anointed king in the Old Testament is God's special commission to have that king represent all the people. That's how God deals with Israel in the Old Testament. And so over and over, we see actually the story of Israel is if you have a good king, the people are generally pretty good, and Israel ends up good. If you have a bad king, the people end up bad, and like Israel goes to pot. So if the king was bad, the people were bad. There was judgment. If the king was good, the people were good, and there was blessing. And this is how Mark decides to present who Jesus is to us, right off the bat. That's what he's saying. So in verse 7, uh, John the Baptist, uh, some are questioning if he claims to be the Messiah. John the Baptist says, there's someone coming more important than me, which is significant, significant because at the time here, John is getting all the media hype. He's getting all the tweets, all the, uh, the news ticker is going to always be talking about John the Baptist. It's always going to be the 24-hour news hole. It's all about John the Baptist doing this weird thing out in the desert here. Uh, but he's not the main show. He's just there preparing and pointing to the main show. And that Isaiah quote brings the bigness of John the Baptist's message to the forefront. Because if John is the messenger, what is he heralding in verse 3? Prepare the way for the Lord. That's God himself. So surely that's bigger than the messenger, but it's God himself. So Jesus isn't just any king. He is the son of God. That's a very kind of unique kind of title. He's following the path of Israel, but he's not like the other Israelite kings. He's not just a strong kind of man or a good kind of man. He's not just like really good at the thing he's doing. He's the son of God himself, the Lord in the flesh. So this person 
who John the Baptist is unworthy even to touch his like dirty, disgusting sandals, will baptize with the Holy Spirit in verse 8. It says, uh, John says, I'll baptize you with water, so I'm going to get you wet. But he, this coming Lord, this coming King, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So his plan, uh, so God himself is coming, and his plan isn't just to get us merely wet, but to plunge us into God himself. His plan is to saturate us with the Holy Spirit, to be completely immersed in all of God. And John's preparation, John's kind of um, heralding is like a, like a boxer's entrance music. It's blaring on the loudspeakers, it's being played super loud. God himself is coming to give us himself. And who is this person? Where is he going to come from? How, how's he going to show up? Well, verse 9, in classic kind of Mark kind of way we're going to see, says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth. So here's Jesus showing up right when John is saying, this king is going to come. The Lord who'd been waiting for his way to be prepared. The anointed one, the king, the Holy Spirit baptizer shows up and takes the humble act of being baptized himself. So this is another way that Mark is telling us that Jesus is identifying with us. So not only was Jesus the anointed one, so therefore he's representing a people of some sort, he's also being baptized, which is weird because John's baptism was about repentance. Jesus doesn't need to do that. Jesus doesn't do that in his, in his baptism. So Jesus is unlike anyone else who's ever been baptized by John here. He's not doing one out of repentance. He's doing one to identify with us for all those who are repenting. He's basically Jesus stooping down to our level, saying, this is the path of me becoming your king. I'm becoming like you in these ways. So um, what did the king spend his time doing? What was he about? Verses 14 through 15 uh, kind of has a quick summation of the things that Jesus was teaching. First, he was teaching. He was proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15 says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's just kind of a summation of the teaching. It's not like Jesus had like a 15-second sermon. And it's like, all right, the next city, I'll say the same thing. Didn't have a sandwich board kind of with that written on him. Um, the king is here gathering his kingdom to himself. And the time is now. The time has been prepared, and now it's here. It's coming. It's the same then as it is for us today. Jesus is telling us the time is now. So it's the right time. Jesus' kingdom has come near. In later sermons, we'll get to what this kingdom is all about uh, later on. But for now, what does it mean for this kingdom to be near? Jesus says because of this, seemingly, that we need to repent and believe the good news. So again, this like idea of repentance is coming up. John was doing it and talking about it. Now Jesus is doing it and talking about it. Repentance, um, again, is another thing that will kind of come up often throughout Mark. But uh, just for now, the idea isn't just like a change of thinking in the mind. It's a change of believing and, and acting and being in the heart. It's a way of thinking about, uh, maybe a way of thinking about it is just like a realignment. So recognizing that we're off track. If you're on the wrong track, one small step doesn't matter. But then you take 10 more steps, you're further off. And 10 more, you're further off. So it's basically realizing that we're on the wrong track and asking God to realign us and put us on the right one. It's a realignment of ourselves. So what do we realign ourselves with? Jesus says, believe the good news, believe the gospel. This gospel, not some other one, and there are many in this time and for our day today. There are lots of people who are claiming to say this is the path to fulfillment. We turn from one thing and towards another. We turn towards the good news of Jesus, him being king, and his kingdom he's creating. 
I um I know we can probably be blasé about the idea of Jesus being king. It's probably not the first time you've ever heard this before. Um, or maybe you were already over the idea before you even got to this point in the sermon. But don't let familiarity breed contempt. Um, let's not, the, let, not let the insanity, the ridiculousness, the surprising act of what uh, Jesus is doing, becoming king, in this particular way be lost on us. Because this really is a bit insane, the way God is showing himself. In the Old Testament, God always showed himself in a way that was unapproachable and in judgment and basically scary, basically fire or some kind of things where people end up dying some way or another. Uh, Jesus is not doing that. Jesus' main task, we're going to find a mark, is to make right what is wrong in this world. So the king has come and is searching after every broken way so that it can be put back together. Every crooked way is being made straight under this king. But from the first point, we find that we are what's broken. So we, we talk about us being broken. We talk about this king who, if it is the Lord himself, he's going to be perfect in all possible ways. A perfect king has come in contact with broken people, his disloyal subjects. What's he going to do? Put them, you know, in the stocks or castigate them or, like, cast them out of his kingdom, subjugate them, whip them into shape? He's proclaiming the good news of God, and he asks people to follow him. That should be really surprising if it's God himself. Jesus asks us to follow him. He's asking broken people to join in his kingdom. These people are broken. He's asking them to join in his kingdom. How can people who need to be made right be part of that right-making process? How's that work? Well, we have um, two instance, instances here in Mark early on in the verses uh, 16 through 20 of what that looks like. The first one in 16 through 18 says, um, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net to the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Um, so basically it seems like fishermen one moment, following Jesus the next. She just says, come follow me. Like, oh, okay, and they just do it. Uh, where them leaving their nets is like them leaving their job, them leaving probably their identity, them leaving... Like they're maybe their friends. Who knows what else is going on there? At the very least, there's at least some aspect of who they are they're leaving. And there is a call that Jesus has. Either you continue with that or you can continue with me with this. And their response says, at once, they left their nets. They followed Jesus. So the first uh, instance there is they left nets. The second instance is that there is a, a bit of leaving family. So when uh, in verses 19 through 20, when Jesus, when he, Jesus, had gone a little bit further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So again, people leaving nets again, but also leaving their father. And especially in this, uh, in, in this culture and in this time, um, family is, is who you are. Family is where you come from, and that means a lot. Jesus comes across more of these like working class fishermen who are probably smelly and probably not like the coolest people you've ever met. But without delay, he calls them. And then seemingly without delay, also they leave their nets and they follow him. Family more so then was who you were. It was your identity, your primary focus, your responsibility. But is Christ saying like you can't see your family anymore? Is he saying like, I know you love your dad, but leave him and now follow me and never see him or be involved with him ever again? Sounds a bit harsh. Uh, I, but there is 
an either or into following Jesus. But uh, what Mark is communicating here is there's a certain priority, a certain order, and a certain kind of demand that the king is putting upon these people who are following him. So he's not saying never interact with your family. We'll see kind of how that works out later parts in Mark. But what is happening here is a call to full devotion. Like you can't also claim, put your, your, um, your trust into where you came from and also follow me. It just doesn't work. You can't put your trust in your career or what you do with your hands and follow me. It doesn't work. So Jesus called these people to join him. He's the king. No other prophet ever in the Old Testament would say, follow me, because that's blasphemous, because the prophet would never say, follow me. The prophet would say, follow God. So Jesus is saying, follow me, because he's not like any other prophet. He didn't come to berate people or to destroy them. When this king comes into contact with broken people, he asks them to join him. That's really surprising, because... <laughs> In the Old Testament, I mean, I was just reading in Exodus the other day, when God was giving out the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel didn't even want to hear God's voice because they thought if they heard his voice, they would die. But here is God himself with his voice calling out to others, saying to join him, to be near him, to follow him. And to follow Jesus means putting everything else second, your job, your work, your family, everything, and all the other places where we try and get our identity from. Regardless of how you make your money, who you think you are, where you come from, Jesus is asking where are you going? Follow me in this direction. I'm making every part of your whole. Where are you going? Whether you identify as conservative or liberal or come from a Christian family or don't or are working class or middle class or whether you own a certain kind of car or house or come from the north or the south or use Apple products or some other inferior technology. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Those are mean shots. Um, whether you're uh, earning six figures or barely earning five or none at all, whether you call yourself straight or gay or trans or queer or hetero or non-binary or if you have children or not, whether you like reading big theological books or whether you're normal, <laughs> Jesus is looking at all of us, asking us to leave our nets, asking us to leave our family to follow him. And Jesus' call isn't to repent and to get right and then to follow him. He says, repent and join me. Jesus doesn't require anything more of these fishermen other than to follow him, literally like with their feet, follow him as they're walking. He didn't say, first, get yourself cleaned up. You smell like fish. This is horrible. He didn't say, make sure you have some kind of right theology first. He didn't say, get your sexual identity right before you can follow me. He asked them to come and join him. And they did. In verse 15, Jesus tells people to repent and believe the good news. In verses 16 through 20, we see people doing just that. They're following through. So we can tend to make Christianity about getting things right sometimes. And though doing things right is an important part of Christianity, it's not the first <coughs> importance. It's not how we come to Jesus. Christianity teaches us that the king, when looking upon us normal, needy humans, invites us into a relationship. And this relationship is what changes us. This is re relationship is what gets us on the right track, the right path. And this surprising king stoops low, literally, with his baptism being stooped low. And in Jesus' baptism, as a human is plunging the king of all creation underwater into the River Jordan, the heavens tear open. And in verse 11, the father speaks to Jesus. And the father booms out, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And in the 11th verse, the Trinity is here in full force, working together. And as we get to peek into this little 
kind of crazy inter-Trinitarian scene. We see Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, and he's identifying with us. Who could have predicted this? This is a very surprising way for an all-powerful king to come. Jesus anointed as king over us means he identifies with us. He didn't need to be baptized for repentance. He did it to identify with us. And he identifies with us so that we can get our identity from him. That's the switch that's going on with following Jesus. He identifies with us so that we can get our identity from him. When we follow Jesus, that's what we get. We become the children of God. God looks down on us and says, you are my daughter. You are my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. I love you. I love you so much. I'm so excited that you're in my family. This is God the Father speaking to us now. Jesus is anointed for our sake, baptized for our sake, identifies with us in everything. We get our identity from him. But that question that I asked earlier, how can broken people, traitors to this king, be accepted and join this perfect king and what he's doing? It's a perplexing problem, but it's one that Jesus himself solves later on in Mark. And this is why the cross matters, because this is where that kind of love and justice come together, where Jesus takes on our traitor's acts upon himself and puts them to death. He also gives us his wholeness and puts us back together again. Now, this hasn't happened yet in Mark, but it's already happened in our lives. And what a surprising twist to the human predicament that outside of Jesus coming would have been the human tragedy. The king taking on our sins so we don't have to. And that should leave us in joy. Because we don't have to carry those heavy burdens before. All that shame, all that guilt, the weight of having to figure things out for ourselves or having to be at least 51% good enough, we don't have to carry that. Jesus says, leave your nets, leave your family connections, leave all those other inferior places where you feel like you know who you are and follow me. And we have to do this because Jesus requires all of us. He loves us too much to allow us to give like a 1% and then be okay with it. He wants to change all of us. We can't come in contact with anything else. He loves us too much to allow anything else to, to ruin uh, what he has as we're in his hands. He asks us to drop everything to come and follow him. And because he's identified with us in his life, through his baptism and in his death on the cross, where he's identified with us by taking on our sins, this bread that we will celebrate is a symbol of his body broken for us, broken so that we don't have to be. And gluten-free as well over there. I won't touch it so there's not any kind of cross-contamination there. <laughs> and uh, in his resurrection, he identifies with us, where he gives us new life that empowers us to live in this new way. And so this wine on both sides, alcohol-free and alcoholic here, um, is a symbol of his new blood that allows us, of his blood, that allows us to have this new life. And in his ascension, where he is now the king, he rules over everything. Looking down on us now, as we are worshiping him, by learning more about what his story tells us. Um, he's leading, he's advancing, he's healing, he's the king. And this, what we're about to do in taking part of, uh, of Lord's Supper, is a spiritual practice for those who recognize Jesus as king. And so if that's not you, we ask for you not to participate in this. But if you do come up, um, when you do, drop everything. Leave your nets. Leave your family. Come and follow him. And maybe even spend a little bit of time asking God what it is that he's asking you to drop as you come to this table today. Because what you're bringing to this table is your brokenness. 
That's what you get to bring. You just get to bring your shame. You get to bring your brokenness. You get to bring your sin. And what Jesus offers symbolically through this table is all the good parts, all the wholeness that we really want, all the newness that we really want to uh, to cover us in. Uh, Through what Jesus has done, he has immersed us in God himself.